0: What does the Bible say about the age of accountability and what happens to children at the rapture and during the tribulation period? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. It is in
1: the darkest times of our lives that we tend to think the worst, worry the most, and believe the least.
0: Have you ever been reading a book and you reached a point in the story where it looked like all hope was lost and you wanted to flip to the back just to make sure everything was going to turn out all right? Well, today in our series entitled The Revelation, we come to a portion of the book of Revelation that flips to the back of the book, so to speak, to show us everything is going to turn out all right.
1: I think chapter 14 is intended to to bring us out of the darkness of chapter 13 where we just spent the last two weeks and to remind us again that God is on His throne, that God is in control, that God will accomplish the purposes for which He has intended all along to do. No matter how dark it may look in our lives, God is there. And because He is, we will be victorious.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. The last two weeks we've been in Revelation chapter 13 which gives us an account of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet, the setting of his image, and the mark of the beast. It's a dark time in the history of the world and as chapter 13 closes it looks as if Satan is in control. But as chapter 14 opens we find a very different picture as God gives us a glimpse of the end and His final victory.
1: If you were with us uh, last week, if you happen to be here, uh, you may remember that uh, I, I made this statement something to this effect. God never lets us get very far from the idea that He is in control. God never lets us get too far removed from the truth that God is on His throne, that He is uh, accomplishing His purposes and His plans for His creation and for our lives. I think that part of the reason is because that's what we tend to do. It is in the darkest times of our lives that we tend to think the worst... Worry the most and believe the least. My uh, oldest grandson, Wyatt, and I walked down to the uh, mailbox a week or two ago. And uh, we usually go sometimes in the morning, but they spent the night that night. He and Dakota spent the night. And so we went down at night, went down in the dark. And uh, he's riding on my shoulders. And uh, as we're going down there, just out of the blue, and he's three years old. and, And so out of the blue, he says there might be monsters, and okay, you know, I, it seems like the kid's dealing with some fear factor already here, so there's no need to go into, yeah, there are monstrous people in the world, or there, you know, so, no, Wyatt, I said, no, Wyatt, you know, there's no such thing as monsters, monsters aren't real, they're only pretend, and he says, yeah, they're just pretend, so we go on down the mailbox, we get the male and um, you're walking back up and all of a sudden uh, somebody's dog starts barking uh, in their house and you can tell it's a large dog and, and there must not be much furniture or something in the house because it was just echoing and it it's
0: just
1: like it's real you know, loud and deep and stuff and why? he says what's that and I said that's a dog barking and he's like quiet for five or six seconds I don't know and then he says it might be ghosts <laughs> that's what we do we tend to run to the dark places. In, in, in the worst times in our lives, in the dark times of our lives, in the hard times of our lives, in the uncertain times of our lives, we tend to, we tend to think the worst, worry the most, and believe the least. Revelation chapter 13 is a dark time in the history of the world. Probably the darkest The Bible commentator Oliver Green puts it this way when he says this, In chapter 13, truth had fallen in the streets, and the saints' blood ran like water. At the close of chapter 13, good had been almost banished from the earth, and faith was almost unknown. The beast proudly proclaimed himself to be God and dictated both political and religious policies. It is a dark time in the history of the world. And then you turn the page, and chapter 14 comes rushing into the story the way light comes rushing into a dark room when the curtains are pulled back. Chapter 14 jumps into this story, I believe, precisely because of what I said a moment ago, because it is in the times of uncertainty and and the times of, of questioning and the times of darkness that we tend to think the worst Worry the most and believe the least. And chapter 13, as I said, is dark. And so I believe that chapter 14, in this, in this narrative, this story, as we're taking this year to walk through the book of Revelation, I think chapter 14 is intended to, to bring us out of the darkness of chapter 13, where we just spent the last two weeks, and to remind us one more time, and he's not finished, by the way, it'll, we'll see it again, but to remind us again that God is on his throne, that God is in control, that God will accomplish the purposes for which he has intended all along to do, no matter how dark it may look in our lives God is there and because he is we will be victorious revelation chapter 14 just the first five verses this morning the text will be up on the screen and if you have a copy of God's word perhaps you've already turned there then I looked and behold the lamb was standing on Mount Zion And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, they are blameless. The first thing John says in Revelation chapter fourteen, this first thing that we see as we turn the page, as we open it to chapter fourteen, the first words out of John's mouth is, Then I looked and behold the lamb standing. What a stark contrast to chapter thirteen. I In all the times that I've read the book of Revelation, I don't know that it's ever struck me just how divisive the end of chapter 13 is and the beginning of chapter 14 is. How sharp the contrast is between what we saw in chapter 13 and chapter 14. When we closed the book last week in chapter 13, Satan had formed sort of an unholy trinity empowering the antichrist and empowering the false prophet. And, and together they were working to have total domination, total control of, of God's creation. And quite honestly, for a while, it will appear as if they have accomplished just that. It will appear that, that Satan is firmly in control and he is getting exactly what he's wanted all along. To steal God's praise and God's glory and, and to have it given to himself. And then suddenly chapter 14 says, And behold the Lamb standing now, uh, if, you've, if you've been with us in previous uh, weeks, you know that uh, the Lamb uh, represents who? Jesus Christ. That's right. So, uh, when he says he sees the Lamb standing, what John's saying, says, I looked in this vision that God is giving me. Remember, John's on this island called Patmos. God's giving this vision. Just... Quick review. And, he, and, he, and in this vision, he looks and he sees Jesus Christ. The text says standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is part of the, the hill complex that makes up the city of Jerusalem. In the, in the term Mount Zion, the word Mount Zion, the hill itself is kind of used interchangeably to refer to the city of Jerusalem. So John looks and here is Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion. Not what it looked like at the end of chapter 13. And remember. Or if you remember, if you've studied much of Scripture at all, you probably know that that all the prophets and the book of Revelation, everything makes it clear that Jesus doesn't return. Jesus doesn't physically appear in Jerusalem or set his foot down there in in, in Zion. He doesn't come back to that to the earth until the end, the very end of the age. So here we are, sort of fast-forwarding to what's going to happen. Remember. Chapters twelve through fourteen, just to remind you, if you've been with us or maybe hearing it for the first time, chapters twelve through fourteen in the book of Revelation make up what I call a parenthetical pause. It's like hitting the pause button on the DVD player, right? So that you can answer some questions for your for somebody that might ask you, what's going on in that movie or something, you know? So that you can you can catch up, sort of, fill in some informational gaps, get the entire gist of the story. It's like hitting the pause button. That's what Revelation chapters 12 through 14 are. It doesn't advance the timeline as we've been going through the book of Revelation. It stops and it fills in some informational gaps for us. The interesting thing, though, about chapter 14 is that while John has the the DVD player on pause, he fast forwards to the end to give us a glimpse of how this whole thing turns out. Now, usually you might say, well, I don't, don't give away the ending. God can't wait to give away the ending. He's been giving away the ending since, since Genesis. And so chapter 14 is kind of like fast-forwarding to the end so that we get a glimpse of what's going on. And so what does John see? He sees Jesus Christ, the Lamb, behold, standing on Mount Zion, clearly triumphant, but he's not alone. The text says, that there's 144,000 with him. His name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, let me say this. There is some disagreement over this, but I think I would be safe to say that the majority of conservative biblical scholarship believe, and I would fall into that camp of belief, that these 144,000 are the one hundred and forty four thousand believers in Jesus that we were introduced Jewish believers in Jesus that we were introduced to way back in Revelation chapter seven? I think it's the same one hundred and forty four thousand that we were introduced in Revelation chapter seven. You, you may remember, maybe you've read it. Revelation chapter seven, beginning of verse three says this: "Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads." And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed, watch this, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And if you're with us, you remember in chapter 7, it broke down, 12,000 from the tribe of Dan, 12,000 from the tribe, all these different tribes. It breaks down to make up 144,000. So they clearly are Jewish in heritage and in background. And in Revelation chapter 7, we find out that this large group of, of Jews... Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what causes them to all suddenly come to faith in Christ at the beginning of the tribulation period? We don't know for sure. I believe that what causes them to come to faith in Christ will be the rapture of the church. The snatching out of the, of the church. Those who place their faith in Christ now, the, the, the Christians that it will suddenly be the removal of millions of people from the face of the earth. And I don't know how many Christians there actually are in the world. There's, a, there's not as many as there are that attach their name to that, uh, that name to them. But however many it is, it will be millions of people that will suddenly disappear from the face of the earth at the very beginning of the tribulation period. I believe that it will be, that will be the catalyst that will cause these Jewish, I believe, orthodox or practicing Jews who have studied the Scripture to suddenly say, Holy smokes! Those Christians were right. They said they were going to disappear one of these days. They were right. And I think it will drive them to the text. and It will drive them to scripture. And it will drive them to the realization that Jesus really was Messiah. Is, is who they're looking for. It would be the Hebrew term. Yeshua really was Messiah. He is the Savior. And I believe 144,000 Jews at that moment or at that time period will give their life to Jesus Christ. They'll be saved by grace just like you and I are. They'll come into relationship with God. Now, here they are, that, here they are in, in, at the end of the, of the age, really, fast forward in chapter 14, and they're standing triumphantly with their Savior. They're standing triumphantly with their Messiah, with their God on Mount Zion. It's an awesome scene. And John says that he hears this voice from heaven. And, and listen to this description. I heard a voice from heaven... Like the sound of many waters, probably meaning that it's that it's that it's multiple or it's a multitude. That you know how water, the sound of rushing over rocks, or just probably he's saying that that this is this is a lot. This is is a lot of people heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, probably probably meaning powerful, strong. And, he says, And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. In other words, probably meaning that it's melodic, that it's musical. Remember this, the word like is a big deal in the book of Revelation. I've said this a few times throughout the study. John, throughout this book, is trying to describe to us, as God gives him this vision, he's trying to describe some things to us of which he has never seen or never heard. And so that word like becomes very important because John says it, it's like, it's, it's kind of like he's trying to use terms and words that he knows to, to describe something that he's never heard before or never seen before. He said it's kind of like this. Here's what we know. Here, here's, here's really is what he's saying. It's loud, it's powerful, it's beautiful, it's melodic, it's music. John hears music. Listen to verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne. I love the fact that they sang a new song before the throne. And you say, oh, that's because you, don't, you, don't, you hate the old songs. No, I don't hate the old songs. I love old hymns. But you, you know what I love about this? You know what I love? The, the, Revelation 14 says they sang a new song because you know what it says? It says that our God is not just a God of the past. Our God is a God of the present. Our God is a God of the future. Our God is a God who is still working. Our God is a God who is still accomplishing his task and his purposes in people's lives. He's still making a difference in people's lives. He's still giving us a new song to sing. He's still putting a new story in our hearts and in our lives, I love the fact that we don't have to sing about a God of of the ages past. I love to sing a song about Moses, Moses, some song. Great, but I love to sing about what God did yesterday and what God's going to do tomorrow. And they sang a new song. I love that fact. John says, uh, they sang this new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. Listen, no matter what the song entails, here's the subject. It's God. Notice they sang before the throne. This is always about God. You know what? It's always about God. Now, the text says that no one could learn the song except the 144,000. Now, I confess that's kind of a peculiar statement. And it really is kind of open for debate as to what the meaning is. But what I think John is saying is the reason these 144,000 are the only ones that could understand what the song was about is because they're the ones that lived it. Because they're the ones who had been purchased from the earth. They're the ones that had been redeemed. They're the ones who had been called by God at a very difficult time in the world, and it will be. They will be called to go out and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to a world that that for to a large degree doesn't want to hear it Christianity will be outlawed the, the, the world system will be in upheaval Creation will be in upheaval It will be a very very difficult time And they're the ones who went through it They're the ones who lived it They're the ones who experienced it They're the ones who felt God's power They're the ones who knew God's leading This is their song It's about what God has done in there It's, it's, it's about the lamb standing And they could understand the song Because they had lived the song But the subject is always the same. It's always God. It's always about what he has done because he's the one that has empowered them. He's the one who has saved them. He's the one who has sent them. He's the one who has gone before them. He's the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a new song about the God who worked in the past, who works in the present, and who work in the future to accomplish his purposes. Now, here's the beautiful thing, ladies and gentlemen. You and I have our own song. Now, there may be some some common denominators in our song, okay? If you're here and you're a, a follower of Jesus, you're in a relationship with God Almighty, you are in that relationship because the Holy Spirit came and brought conviction to your life just like he did to mine. That's a common denominator. If you're in the family of God, you're in that family of God not because of anything that you have done in the way of works but because of what Christ has done and what we will demonstrate in a few moments through the Lord's Supper. Because His body was broken, because His blood was shed, that's a common denominator. Every one of us who are in relationship with Jesus share commonly in the grace of God and aren't you glad that we do? But the way God works in your life is not necessarily the way He worked In her life, or his life, or their life. The the circumstances of your life aren't gonna be just like the circumstances of my life. And the situations you go through won't be exactly the same as situations I go through. And the way God moves in your life won't be exactly the same as the way God moves in my life. And what it means is I've got a song. I've got a story to tell about how God has moved and worked in power in my life. I can sing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Which brings us to the last two verses of the text that we were looking at this morning. Just to remind you again in verse 4 and 5, it said this, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. I know it's a little warm. I think the air turned off. But it's just a few minutes that we have left. I want to give you what really jumped out at me as I looked at that text. Because I understand it's about God. And I understand the scene opens. And it's there to encourage us in the midst of the darkness of our lives The the physical real darkness, the emotional darkness, the spiritual darkness that can sometimes come into our lives. I understand that that chapter 14 is there to throw open the curtains and to throw the light into the room and say God is on his throne. But there was something about these 144,000 that just strikes me. There are four characteristics that I see in their life that I think you and I would do very well as followers of Jesus to emulate. First one is this. It's purity. Again, the the text said, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste or virgin. Well, what's that about? It's y'all women. Y'all are the problem. (laughs) Actually, that's a very good answer. No, that's... Listen, one thing that the text clearly is not implying is that a sexual relationship between a husband and wife, is somehow wrong or, or bad. The text is not saying, oh, because they have never had sex, they're chaste, they're virgins, they've never been in a sexual relationship with them women, because of that, then, then they're okay. There's purity in their life. Text is not implying that sex within itself or the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is in any way wrong. We know that because the writer of Hebrews said this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed, you understand what he's implying, sex, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually Immoral. In other words, he will judge those who are unrepented in their actions, who don't, who don't change their actions, and they, they continue a path that is contrary to God's will and God's design for men and women. So the writer of Hebrews clearly uh, says that, that the sexual relationship within, within marriage is fine. The uh, Song of Solomon implies that the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is beautiful, and dare I say it, to be enjoyed. Paul tells us that, that the sexual relationship between a man and woman in, in holy matrimony is important to keep us from lusting, that it's essential. So clearly, the text is not saying that sexual relationship, which God invented, by the way, that it is wrong. In the context of of, of Revelation chapter 14, keep in mind these 144,000 uh, followers of Jesus, born again followers of Jesus, who are sent out into the world. And if you were here, you may remember I said it's like 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams turned loose on the world. They will live in a time of debauchery and immorality. Oh, you mean like now? <laughs> it's pretty bad now. But just imagine how it will be when the unholy Trinity is in control. When the world is bowing at the feet of Satan and worshiping him. Immorality of all kinds, including sexual, will be, I believe, the, the common practice of the day. And what, what John is saying, what, what, these, what is being said about these is that in the midst of all of that, there's purity in their lives. They won't go down that road. They're not going there. Hey, you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to keep in mind that we are called to a different standard in our lives. We just are. Now listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I am not saying that, that God has called us to some type of, of religious legalism that sucks the, the very spirit out of walking with Jesus and reduces Christianity to nothing more than a bunch of do's and don'ts. That is the farthest thing that God ever intended. But there is no question, ladies and gentlemen, that we are called to a different standard. Colossians chapter 3. Some of my guys that I meet with, they're very familiar with this, with this text. Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 10. Put to death. Now listen to what he says. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now listen to what he says. You used to walk in these ways. Before a relationship with Jesus, you used to walk in these ways. You're, we did. In the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Clean it up. Or more we'll probably let God clean it up in you. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practice and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. It's, it's a life of purity that these 144,000 showed us and that speaks about who they were that you and I would do well to pick up on that characteristic. Listen, if, if nothing else, you know what? Verse 4 and 5, and I'll give you the other three in just a minute. Don't worry, I won't forget but you know what? Verse four and five. If nothing else, you know what verse four and five teaches us: God notices our lives. Because while this new song is about and in honor and glory to God, if I'm understanding that text right, God is in essence bragging on these guys, and that our lives do not do not go unnoticed. And God's not some you know far away pie in the sky by and by kind of thing. And No, he's intricately and intimately involved in our lives. And purity is a characteristic that that should show up. Second uh, characteristic is pursuit. Again, uh, verse 4. For they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I remind you again, they were called to follow him in a time that was not easy. You think it's tough sometimes in this age to follow Jesus? We ain't seen nothing yet. And they follow him wherever he leads. It is pursuit. It's it's what I call reckless abandon in following God. That's what it is. To say, God, what are your plans? What are your desires? What, What do you want me to do? Where can I go? What can I accomplish? What can I do for you? Because listen, here's a principle that I, that, I, that I try to live by and that I have told people for years. And some of you have heard me say it. It is a principle that I believe is a principle of creation. And it is this. If you honor God, God will honor you. Now, how he does that, I'll leave that up to God. But I'm telling you, this is a principle of God's creation. If you honor God, God will honor you. And so this idea of pursuing God and saying, God, what can I do to more fully know you, serve you? Give my life for you. Again, Colossians, I think, again, in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. He's saying, okay, if you're in a relationship with him, you've been adopted into the family of God. Since you've been raised with Christ, what? Set your hearts on things where? Say it. Where? Above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died Spiritually speaking, when you gave your life to Christ, you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I like the way Paul says it to the, uh, to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians. He says this. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death. I want to die to myself and give my life to Him. I want to be in hot-hearted pursuit of God. God. Because Paul has discovered, and these 144,000 have discovered, that that's the only place they're ever going to find actual contentment, fulfillment, and joy, and peace, and purpose, and everything else that we're all looking for in life is found in hot-hearted pursuit of God. Purity, pursuit. The third one looks like this. Presented. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Listen, you and I need to never forget the reality that we have been purchased. Do you think grace is cheap? Salvation may be free to you and me when we give our life to him and commit by faith to his finished work on the cross, but it was anything but cheap. It cost God his very life. The 144,000 had been purchased from the earth, just like you and I are when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, and we are presented to him. We are trophies of his grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? He's writing to believers. Whom you have from God, that Holy Spirit, and that you are not your own. Listen, you and I need to get over that idea. For you have been bought with a price. What's the result? What does Paul say? What's the natural result of being bought with a price? Therefore, therefore, glorify God. So much of my time, it seems, often is spent glorifying myself or pleasing myself or satisfying myself. And Paul says, hey, hey, don't forget, you don't even own yourself. You don't even belong to yourself anymore. If you've come to Christ, He paid for you. He purchased you on the cross, and you're not your own. You were bought with that price. Therefore, present your body to Him. Paul says to the Romans in, in chapter 12, he says, I beg you, present your body a living sacrifice. This is what life is, Paul says. And this is what the 144,000 understood. They presented themselves to the Lamb. One more perfected. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, the text is not implying that these 144,000 were sinless, they were in need of a Savior just like you and I were in need of a Savior. They were sinners separated from God, just like you and I were separated from God. But they came by faith to Him and entered into a relationship with Him and began walking in that relationship today and the next day and the next day and the next day. And you know what? They were not sinless. They were not perfect. I don't believe any of us will be this side of glory. Before we get there, I don't think any of us will be perfect. But there there was this, this striving in their life to daily sin Less, not sinless, but to sin less. And looking forward, looking forward, looking forward to that day when we will be presented to the Lamb, not only positionally, but practically in his presence, and to be perfected. For the for the flesh and the desires of the flesh to no longer have its pull at me and to be finally in eternity what God desires for me and is shaping me to being even now. From the doom and gloom of chapter 13 to the light and life of chapter 14, and it just gets better in chapter 14, but we're going to spend a month just in chapter 14. So the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle, you're all dying to know what it is, so you can fill in your little blank. Here it is right here. The 144,000 live through the worst of it, but they end up with the best of it, because they end up with Christ they end up perfected, having pursued his life and his plans for their life, having been purified by the blood of the Lamb, and accomplishing the purposes for which he has fallen. Listen, if you and I can strive for those four characteristics that these 144,000 demonstrated in their life, if you and I can strive for those, we'll go a long ways to accomplishing all that God has for us. Not that that in some way is going to please God or, or make God love you more. He loves you now. He already died for you. He's just waiting for you to come to him if you haven't. And if you have, he's simply calling you to the life that is going to bring you everything that you really want. It may not be what you think you want, but it's what God knows is best for you. He's worthy. He paid the price. He has the plan. And someday, behold, the lamb standing on Mount Zion.
0: What a picture. The Lamb and the 144,000 together on Mount Zion. It's a picture that followers of Jesus can look forward to and that encourages us even today as it reminds us that no matter how dark the circumstances of our life may appear, God is always there. He's never going to leave us in the dark, and we can trust Him to bring the victory we need in our lives. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. and
1: a time at Cross Culture where we answer a question of the week each week. And the one this week is this. What does the Bible say about the age of accountability? I've gotten that one quite honestly several times and haven't really dealt with it. So what what does the Bible say about the age of accountability? Now, if you're saying, well, what's the age of accountability? You're all probably wondering that, right? Okay, I, I got an answer prepared. The age of accountability is a belief that God takes to heaven all those who die before coming to an understanding of sin and its consequences before God. In other words, in, in the Christian faith, and in the evangelical Christian faith... Uh, There is only one access to heaven, and that is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and each person must place their faith in that finished work on the cross. There's lots of different religions in the world. I've talked about that on a number of occasions, and people ultimately are going to decide who they're going to believe in or what they're going to place their faith in, but we believe that there is salvation in no other than the name of Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes into the Father except through me. So the question is well, what about a, what about a baby? What about a child uh, that, that is never able to, to come to a comprehension of, uh, of who God is and, and uh, that sort of thing? So the age of accountability is a belief that God uh, takes to heaven all those who die before coming to an understanding of sin and its consequences before God. I have found that most people believe in some age of accountability in, in some way. Quite honestly, there is very little biblical uh, evidence of it. It, just, it. The Scripture just doesn't deal with it a whole lot, to tell you the truth. The primary text that is used in support of the idea that uh, those who die before they come to an understanding of what sin is and, and what, who God is and that sort of thing is based on a story found in Second Samuel. And uh, it's the story of David and uh, his, his child... That Bathsheba was carrying and she was pregnant with. Second Samuel chapter twelve said, His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. And the, the, were, the pregnancy was in distress and it didn't didn't look good, and it says, While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. So the servants, they come in, they find David, and he's, you know, he's washed up, and he's he's bring me in food, I'm hungry, and all that stuff. And prior to that, before the child died, he was, he was almost in a state of mourning. He was fasting, he was praying, he was asking God to work in that situation. And so they're wondering, you know, now that he's, the child has died, now you seem okay. And here's how David responds. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go, and here it is, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So the implication of the text seems to be that David recognizes that his child has gone someplace that he someday shall go as a believer in God. And clearly David finds comfort in this. He seems to find comfort in the idea that yes his child has died, but he will see that child again. He will not come back to me, but I will go to him. So 2 Samuel uh, seems to give us the the at least the idea that uh, those that die at that point um, go to be with God, as I said, the truth is there 's not really much in the way of scripture dealing with the age of accountability i 've read you know that some people believe that it 's the age of thirteen because in in Jewish kind of practice uh, a, a young boy at at thirteen. Uh, goes through bar mitzvah and he he kind of has the the rights and privileges of a man at that point. Some people say that it's at the age of 18 because Moses in the wilderness, when the people rebelled and, and they wouldn't enter into the promised land, God said, okay, you're not going in. Only those 18 and under will enter into the promised land. The truth is, we just don't know. Scripture doesn't seem to say, but as best as I can comprehend from Scripture, the implication seems to be that it is at whatever point in a person's life, that they come to some type of understanding of what sin is. Because each of us are born into sin. We have a sin nature. But to come to an understanding of what it is to violate the laws of God. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, to know that God is, as God has placed it within every person's heart. So a child prior to whatever that maturing would be, I don't think there is a specific, okay, it's at, it's at 8, it's at 13, it's at 18. I don't think there is a specific age. Which would also include perhaps a person who is mentally handicapped, who never comes to a grasp or an understanding of what sin is. Now, real quickly, that led, there was a second question that's been kind of tied to that, and not going to deal a lot with it, but it just simply says, what does the Bible say about children and the rapture? The rapture is the belief that, that uh, believers in Christ will be taken out, but prior to the tribulation period, or in the middle, depending on your view, after the tribulation period, whatever. But the taking out of the believers. What about children? If they haven't come to be a believer, what happens to them? Scripture doesn't say, but again, kind of based on the Second Samuel text and, and the implication of, of the, the, the child's lack of understanding of, of sin and, and God would indicate that a child in the rapture would be caught up and would be um, in heaven as well. So, uh, scripture kind of just doesn't deal a lot with it. We have to draw some, some, uh, some impressions or some ideas from what little bit of text that does uh, deal with it. So that's Q and A for today.